0: Welcome to the Awakened Collective, where we explore the topics of love, spiritual consciousness, and our divine purpose on this planet. Join us as we uncover the truth that our thoughts shape our reality. Welcome to The Awaken Collective. I'm Rick Gregory, and I'm so glad you're here with us today. And as always, I need to remind you that you are a divine extension of your Creator's love on this planet. You have never been separated from your Creator, and we have never been separated from one another. We are all connected at the source, and I have proof of that today. I have a very special guest today. Before I introduce my guest, I want to say thank you to Audio Alchemy Productions and Daniel Anderson. I love you. I am so excited for my special guest today. And before I even introduce her, I want to share the spiritual experience it was for me and meeting her. So I was at brunch at a wonderful place called Broad Street Bakery, and I see this person working away. I walked by her and saw her working, cleaning up some chairs. Now, I'm not talking about just cleaning up some chairs. <laughs> She had the chairs on top of the table, and she was in the freaking zone. (laughs) I mean, she was, I can't even put it into words, the experience that I had as I watched her, because we talk a lot about staying in the moment and being in the now, in the present moment on this podcast. And it was such a clear example of that to me, Um, that just in that zone, it was like, Nothing else was going on. This was what she was focused on doing. And it caught my attention. And I, went, I had actually had to ask her because the place was busy. There were tables that were available, but they were dirty. And I happened to have to ask her if she would mind cleaning a table for us so that we could sit down. And, of course, she was more than helpful to do that. But I continued to watch her as she cleaned these chairs. And then the music was on in the restaurant and she began to sing with the music with this most angelic voice. And I said to myself, God, I have got to know this person. I've got to meet her. And um, I'm sitting there with Glenn, we're eating. And I'm like, I don't know how to go about this. So I just grabbed a business card of mine from my real estate business, went over and said, Hey, my name is Rick. Here's my card. I don't know you, but I like you. And I'm, <laughs> In my head, I'm thinking this person probably thinks I am a nutcase. <laughs> well, we proceeded to have a conversation that I'm not going to get into because it's going to be in her story, I'm sure. Um, but listening to what she has been through and all the similarities and the path that she is on, right down to her daughter being called Simone, who's my grandchild's name, which is not a common name. I mean, right. so many things. Um, I, it was a spiritual experience for me. And we, that conversation led to us talking about what we do in life, our, our journeys. And I mentioned this podcast and here she is today. And still before I introduce her, I came back to my house and I have a friend that I'm reading a book with. And I opened up to this chapter and we're reading it together. And as I read this, I was like, Oh my goodness, this is what I just experienced. And this is from the book called uh, A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle, Awakening to Your Life's Purpose. It's also on my webpage at theawakencollective.org under my reading list. But listen to this. Most people have moments when they are free of ego. Those who are exceptionally good at what they do may be completely or largely free of ego while performing their work. They may not know it, But their work has become a spiritual practice. I have met teachers, artists, nurses, doctors, scientists, social workers, waiters, waitresses, hairdressers, business owners, and salespeople who perform their work admirably without any self seeking, fully responding to whatever the moment requires of them. They are one with what they do, one with the now. One with the people or the task they serve, it comes as no surprise that those people who work without ego are extraordinarily successful at what they do. Anybody who is one with what he or she does is building the new earth. And for me, this young lady, Christine Cody, is building the new earth. She got awards. She's an amazing makeup artist, hairstylist, has gotten awards with the best of Rankin here in Mississippi, best of Rankin County, best of Jackson four times, best 40 under 40. She's an incredible singer, songwriter, artist, and the most amazing thing is she is a wonderful mom to her beautiful daughter, Simone, and she's my new friend. (laughs) I introduce you to Christine Cody. Take it away, Christine. Christine.
1: Thank you so much, Rick, for having me. It is a delight. I am honored and grateful to be here. Um, So where do you want me to start?
0: Just tell us about Christine. Tell us your story. Okay. It's amazing.
1: Well, I grew up in Clinton, uh, an only child and of a single mother, and I've always been a very creative, explorative child and just... Um, had imaginary friends and my cats and, you know, I just did my own thing, you know, and I've, I always saw other people doing their thing and I just, just never felt like I fit into that mold and I just always wanted to, um, just follow my heart and my dreams as since I was young, you know, and so I had a lot of struggles though that I had to, um, overcome even you know as a young daughter you know of a single mom because she had to have me with babysitters and um and sometimes they weren't always kind and so when I was 11 I experienced my first uh sexual assault and that really spun me into a a weird place you know going through puberty and um it kind of you know confused me with what is love and and self-love in my body and, you know, in my relationship with God because he was in seminary school, you know, um, he was my babysitter's husband. And and so that really kind of damaged my relationship Mm. with the Lord. And I kind of went down the wrong path and started becoming promiscuous when I was 13 and I was self-harming and cutting and sneaking out the window and, hanging out with thugs and, you know, and just giving my body away. And I I was attention seeking. I didn't know um, what I was doing. And my mom couldn't control me. And so she's a psychiatric nurse. And so she she had me committed to Whitfield when I was 13. And I stayed there from 8th to ninth grade, like almost a whole entire year. And so um, that was that was hard because they put you right on medication, and you know, and I stayed in seclusion rooms, and uh, I sang to soothe myself, you know. In rooms like this size, no furniture, nothing. It was just white walls and a barred window, and I, I spent weeks at a time by myself in a seclusion room. And when I was thirteen. You know, and I was going through hard stuff, but I still never healed from that trauma. You know, um, I don't think that medicine and seclusion rooms were the the answer at that time. And and that was the 90s when mental health wasn't the same as it is today. You know, there's a lot more help these days. So when I got out, um, you know, I acted better so I could get out. You know, I was ready to go back to school. And, um, and I got my act together and, uh, graduated with honors and, uh, did really well in school. And then I went to college and I was going to be an art teacher because I've always been artistic, but I didn't know what to do with that. Um, so I went to MC for about a year and a half, but then I found myself working part-time at a makeup counter and I loved the joy of having somebody's face in my hands face to face. There was something unique and special about art with, a, with someone and not just alone on a canvas. And so I really, really loved makeup because it brought me close to people and it brought me company. And, you know, being an only child and a, and a loner and a free spirit, you know, I need those connections. Mm-hmm. And makeup was the avenue that brought people to me face to face and we could share our stories in a real private way while I'm doing their makeup, you know. And so I actually ended up dropping out of school and becoming full time at the makeup counter in my early 20s. But that was also in the early 2000s when drugs and alcohol and partying and all the fun stuff was going on. So I kind of got lost in that and um where do i even go from here but so um i ended up losing my job and working at broad street <laughs> and then i was i was 22 at broad street and that's when i started there and um i was a young free spirit and singing and playing at finnians and martins and old tavern and i um Played in a band called the Gnarly Bird, <laughs> and there was a celloist named Bill, and um, and Chris. He was this older guy for, that worked that was in bands in the seventies, and he wrote all our music. And he was a little skinny, scraggly guy, and um, he was just the greatest. But it, he wrote a song for me to sing called "House of Cards," and um, I'll always cherish. Those moments when I when I sang and played with them, because they played the piano, we had the cello, and um, it was just a beautiful time in my life where I was just exploding with music and art, and I was painting several paintings at the same time. But. Alcohol was very present in my life. And so I would drink a whole bottle of wine while I was painting a picture, right? And then I would end up passing out, spilling the wine, and then waking up with half paint, you know, half painting and painting all over me. It was just a it was messy, but it was beautiful. Well, I was painting a picture of a four foot light bulb with a woman inside of it in fetal position. And that that painting is been in a lot of my pictures in the background, and I know a lot of, of my Facebook family friends have seen it. And this woman is inside of the light bulb, and that vision came to me in the middle of the night, um, and it was about being hidden inside of our light and not being able to shine because we're inside of ourselves and something is, is, is holding us back you know from finding our true purpose and our light and our truth that we're we're struggling through um either is is it addiction or trauma or um mental illness just um it could be anything for anybody but that 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 woman hidden inside of a light bulb was how i felt at the time and that my light was more i was inside of it and i couldn't break free so as I was painting this painting when I was 22 years old in Bellhaven in my $350 a month apartment <laughs> this, the, the living room was this big it was the smallest apartment you can imagine the kitchen was this big so I was listening to music and just feeling the you know just very spiritual and painting and um my neighbor um an older gentleman um who was kind of uh, kind of weird and off to me, but I'm a trusting person and I give everybody the benefit of a doubt. And I'm, you know, if, if I see someone who I feel might be a little bit weird or creepy, I'm still gonna feel like there's something special about them anyway. And um, so he stopped by and he saw me painting and he told me that he was an artist as well and that he was a photographer, and he asked me if I wanted to model for him, and uh, he said he'd pay me a lot of money, and so when I was struggling and young and naive, I took him up on that offer. Um, a part of me was scared and worried, so I, I kept it a secret, and so I got dressed like I was going to work that day, and I parked my car around the corner, and then um, went right back to my apartment next door where he lived, right next door to my apartment. And um, and then I went to do the modeling for him, right? And I was real nervous. And so I asked for a drink. And <sighs> moments later, I found myself um, waking up naked in a room with, lights shining on me, recording equipment, and this man um, doing things to my body. And I was not in control of the situation. I felt very, very loopy and out of it. And it wasn't drunk. It was something else. So I I felt like he probably had done something to that drink. And um, and I, I got sick, apparently, and thrown up. Because he took me somewhere else, and I was in a car, and he was driving me somewhere. And at that point, I was real scared. And um, so I had to survive and, and get out of that situation so I could get back home. And he took me to a hotel where he proceeded to do more things to my body, and I had to pretend to enjoy it and until he took me to Cups and dropped me off, and... Um, I had some friends there, and they and they took me home, but I was so traumatized, and 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 I just couldn't stop the 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 visions from coming in my head of what was going on in and out of, of of consciousness, and seeing these bright lights and recording equipment and him doing things, and I just I, I was just so shook up about it. <sighs> And I, I, I needed help desperately. Um, but the, the people who were closest to me in my life at that time didn't understand. And my boyfriend at the time,'t he, he wasn't supportive. He um, he just blocked it out and didn't want to talk about it. And, um, my mother, she, she sort of kind of blamed me for it. And we have a wonderful relationship now to this day, and I don't want to throw her under the bus. I love my mom, but that was a hard time at the time. And so, um, she tried to have me committed again, um, because she felt like I was not capable of taking care of myself because I get myself into terrible situations And so I went down to lunacy court and had to defend my sanity in front of a court of doctors and a judge. Mm. And I did, and they found me sane. (laughs) I was just going through a very traumatic experience. And so me and my boyfriend moved off to South Carolina to get away from all the drama and all the pain and everything, and we just left. And we lived there for a couple years, but we were not healed. We were both drinking and partying and, you know, and I picked back up in my, at my makeup job at Estee Lauder. And, you know, we were trying to live a normal life, but that trauma kept plaguing us, and he just couldn't look at me the same. He didn't see me as the woman he fell in love with anymore. It's like I was dirty. And so we thought that maybe having a baby would save us and I had a miscarriage on Christmas Eve and um and I you know gave birth in the toilet and flushed my baby down the toilet and laid in bed just just hurting and so sad because all I wanted was a baby, because I felt like that was the answer, you know, someone that I could love and that would love me forever, something that would never betray me, you know, I just, that was, we wanted a family, but it wasn't meant to be with him, so he ended up leaving me in South Carolina by myself, and uh, he went down to New Orleans, and so my aunt Elaine in Alabama asked me to come live with her. And um so I'm not gonna tell you. I'm not gonna so anyway, I um had to leave the, for another circumstance. Um there was a lot of drinking and um bars and she's a karaoke DJ, so um there was just still more alcohol and trauma, still unhealed. And I just was still feeling so lost and lonely and broken. And so I packed my shit and went down to New Orleans to try to see who I thought was the love of my life and see if there was anything left for us. And um, packed everything in my car and just drove down there and left everything. And I just was like, this this has got to be it you know it, so i went down to new orleans to see him but he still had this wall and i didn't feel the connection i didn't feel the love i didn't know who he was he didn't know who i was and i just still felt so unloved and lost and i didn't know what to do i didn't know where to go i couldn't go home i didn't know what to do so i took my guitar in my grandma's blanket and a backpack, and drove down to the French Quarter, and just started walking around, just completely lost. And I uh, saw a gutter punk girl standing in a doorway, with her hands on her hips, and she had "free" tattooed on her knuckles. And I was like, "I want to be free. I want to be free." <laughs> and so, uh. Had my guitar and I was like, I'm going to become a street musician. I belong in New Orleans. This is this is. I was born there, so let me become a, a street girl. I want to be free. I want to feel alive again. I want to be a musician again. And um, and I made friends with all these awesome gutter punks that were playing accordions and saxophones and any instrument you could name and artists and. Um, it was right after Katrina. I believe it was around 2006. And all of the Ninth Ward, the houses were still um, empty and devastated and rubble, rubbish was everywhere. But there was a school in the Ninth Ward that they named the Common Ground. And this school uh, was a commune of artists and musicians and college students that came to help rebuild homeless people. Anybody was welcome. And so I... Stayed in a little classroom in a bunk bed and like next to a chalkboard that had old, um, you know, lesson plans and stuff written on it. It was so interesting. And I I made a bunch of cool friendships and um, I kept some of my art in a closet down there and uh, uh, slept in my car sometimes. And I got a job at Fiorella's on Decatur Street, which was a fried chicken place. And just like I do today at Broad Street where I bring food out and I'm singing and I'm, you know, happy and alive, I did the same exact thing there. And I would come out with your fried chicken and say, summertime and the living's easy, yeah,
0: <laughs>
1: you know. And it was, it was a yeah. real fun, thriving time. Um, and uh, I made a bicycle out of different bicycle parts and I called it my Frankenstein bike (laughs) and so I'd ride my bike to work and um, hung out in bars and slept in my car and um, I was on the streets for three months Mm. yeah (laughs) and it was the dead winter and so it was real cold and we didn't have heat at the common ground so We didn't take showers very often. It was too cold. So I learned how to rough it and um, eat other people's leftovers and not care about germs. I mean, it was a time, you know. So I was walking down one of the streets in the French Quarter. It could have been Royal. I don't even remember. But I saw this boy with beautiful blue eyes and we caught eyes and just stared at each other and I was looking at him and he looked at me and he got up and just started following me and he's like where are you going I don't know I'm just walking I don't know and he's like can I come with you and I said sure whatever and so uh he did not leave my side (laughs) he just wanted to be my friend and he introduced me to what's called spanging, which is spare change. (laughs) (laughs) When you ask people for their spare change, you know, so I had to start asking people for dollars and, hey, man, you got any spare change to spare, you know? And so I was doing that whole thing. But I I didn't feel very good about that. So I, I like to sing and perform and actually, like, put on a show if you're going to give me a dollar, you know, make you laugh, do something cute. I don't know. Read your palm. I don't know. So he kind of attached on to me because I had a talent. I was a female, you know, yada, yada, how it goes. And so he slept in the car with me. He just followed me around and just wouldn't leave my side for a whole week. And he asked me to go on the road and and do the whole road life. And um, I was nervous and scared about it. I'm kind of panicky. My heart was just beating when we left town. I just was scared to leave New Orleans. Um, but you could have talked me into anything at that time. And so as we were driving through Texas and then New Mexico and Arizona, the anxiety, I guess, lessened a little bit. And I was kind of more like, okay, where are we going Next. And um, left my wallet on the hood of the car at one gas station, and we drove off. And so now I am have no ID. Mm. I'm completely ID free with this kid that I didn't know. <laughs> and I'm off wandering the country. We've got two dogs in my little blue Cavalier that I stopped making payments on. Which is... <laughs> What are we doing? You know, and we just left town and we would just stop at city to city and he would ask people for money. I would sing on the back of the car. People, people really blessed us. You know, there was a lot of couples that would give us a hundred dollar bill. A lot of people gave us twenties, Bibles, food, prayed for us. Like we were truly, truly blessed our whole journey. We never went without. I actually gained weight being homeless. I got, wow. uh huh, <laughs> yeah, I got, I got heavier because somebody would give me a Subway sandwich, and then the next somebody else would give me McDonald's. Right after that, they were just pouring us with food and things. Um, so that that journey was was um, interesting to say the least. And so we went all the way up to Washington State and I met his dad and his grandmother. We stayed with them for a while and then we came all we came down through California so it was in Eugene California at a 420 gathering that I wanted to be a part of this this um, at this bar with these uh, you know, adults drinking and having a good time. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go do my thing. I'm an adult. I want to go hang out with other adults. You know, I'm I'm sick of you right now. <laughs> so I went to um, have some drinks and have a good time. And when I got back to the car, he was furious. He was mad as could be. And he was like, we're leaving. We're going. Da And so... We just drove and drove for hours through the night until we got, I guess, to Arizona. I don't even know where we stopped. And uh, he got real violent. Um, There were wine bottles being thrown at walls at this hotel room. And this whole memory is a blur because, of course, we were drunk. And I remember blood, but that is all broken glass and bottles and blood. And at that point, I needed to get away from this guy. He was becoming real violent and weird. And he had told me something about one of his exes being pregnant and him kicking her in the stomach to lose it. And I'm like, okay, this is a real crazy person I'm with. And I've got to get away from him. And so when I got uh, to Arizona, we were in Arizona. And We were staying at this hippie house, and um, there was a big rock sculpture of a dragon in the yard and an outhouse where we had to use the bathroom. There was no electricity, and there was a man that would let hippies come and stay and go along their journey. And so we stayed at this house, and that night we, um, we were drinking and maybe doing mushrooms. I don't even know. Um, we, I branded my neck with this thing that they had sculpted into the, the, the word one. We are one. We are one. You know, and I got my neck burnt, <laughs> and it was just a whole wild night. Well, the next morning, we're all waking up in a fog, you know, and we're driving to town, and um, he was in the passenger seat, and I was driving, and Rihanna's umbrella song comes on. Umbrella, Ella, Ella, A, A, A. And then, boom, lights out. I got punched right in the face, okay, while I was driving. And I pulled over, and I'm crying, and I'm holding my face, and I'm like, why'd you do that? And he was like, you were flirting with that guy last night. I'm like, what are you talking about? You know? And so I was like, I'm done with you. I'm leaving. And I just started walking down the road. And, um, actually it was New Mexico. It was New Mexico. It was a New Mexico mountain. I have a postcard. Anyway, so he gets behind the wheel and he's chasing after me and, you know, get back in the car. I'm sorry. No, leave me alone. And I'm like, you know, and he ended up driving the car into the guardrail of a mountain and messed up the whole bumper and the, the, the wheel was shaking and about to fall off. And, um a fireman truck guy came and picked me up and took me back to the house where we were staying. And and he drove the car back up the mountain like that. and And um, he was telling me how sorry he was. And so we ended up hitchhiking from there and left the car in the mountain <laughs> mm. and took our two dogs and backpacks, my grandma's blanket that I still have, And um, we were hitchhiking, and here I was with a black eye with this guy, and I just had to do what I knew best, and that was just to be sweet and survive and uh, get through it until I could make, make my escape plan to get home. So we hitchhiked from New Mexico all the way to Missouri, which is like all the way across the country and north, okay? And we just took 18-wheeler rides, and I knew that was so dangerous. I mean, what on earth, you know, was I thinking? But I had faith that I was still going to be okay. You know, I always had this, this seed inside of me that a, a protective thing, like it's why I was never, uh, you know, willing to try too many drugs, you know, I just, I, I was in dangerous situations over and over and over, but somehow I always knew I was safe, and I believe that was God, you know. So when we got to Missouri, um, I, I felt the need to get away. Like, this is when I, this I need to get away from him now, or I'm going to die out here. I knew it. I was like, I'm going to die out here if I don't go home. And I was sitting outside of a Walmart, in the in the grass, little little uh, sidewalk area, and I was sick. I was throwing up. My boobs were sore, and I knew I was pregnant. I knew I was pregnant. I'd been pregnant before, and um, <laughs> and I was holding this sign that said "homeless, broke, and hungry." And people were stopping and giving me $20 bills one after another. And I had $60. And he came out of the Walmart and was like, how much money did you get? I said, I got $60. Isn't that great? And he grabbed it, went inside, and bought a CD player and some Nickelback or some crappy music, you know, at the time. And, um, (laughs) And I was just over it. Like, okay. I, we needed food. We needed a place to stay. This isn't bad. He's, this is bad. So I said, you know what? Anything is better than this. And I just need you to go your way. And I'm going to go my way. And um, he was real mad. And he cussed me out and called me all the names and said, I was not, you know, cut out for the road life. And I was weak and pathetic and, you know, go back home. Yada, yeah, you, you can't, you know, I was like, whatever. I don't want to hear any of this. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I just want to go home. I'm done with this. And so I um, went to a gas station and I was pacing back and forth and this lady saw me and she's like, are you okay? I said, no, not really. <laughs> I need to get back to Mississippi to my mom's house. I'm pregnant and I'm homeless and I I just really need to go home. And she said, okay. And she took me back to her house, and I got a bath. And she gave me some purple sweat, a purple sweat suit, like I look like Barney. <laughs> you know, pants and shirt. Um, and then I felt this pulling need, like never before, to go back to that gas station. Like, it's like something was tearing my chest out. And I told her, I said, I've got to go back to that gas station. I'm so sorry. My ride is there. And she was, she's like, no, I want to give you a bus ticket. Please let me give you a bus ticket. And I said, thank you, but no thank you. I, I just, I don't know why, but I have to go back to that gas station. And um, so she drove me back, even though she didn't want to. And um, it was one of those gas stations with uh, the 18-wheelers as well, one of the big ones. And I saw this lady getting out of an 18-wheeler who had big, blonde, poofy hair, stonewashed, blue jeans on. You know, she, she looked real Alabama, and she was, she was real cool looking. And then two teenage kids got out of the 18-wheeler behind her. And I was like, that's my ride right there. She's a mom. She's a cool lady. That's, that's my ride. And so I went up to her, and I was like, hey, I know this is so uh, random and out of the blue, but I really need to get to Mississippi. And I'm pregnant. I'm homeless. I'm stranded. I just need a ride home. And she looked at me like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe that, you know? And she's like, you stay right here. Don't go anywhere. I will be right back. And so I stayed, and I hung out with her kids, and they had a ferret <laughs> and everything in that in that 18-wheeler. And um, when she came back, she says, I'm going to take you home. I said, okay. And so she rerouted her whole thing. Like, she was actually supposed to go east to Pennsylvania or something. And so we drove from Missouri all the way down and even stopped at her parents' house in this double-wide trailer with their two little dogs and um it was so quaint and, and southern, and, and they fed me, and it was just real sweet. And I'm just this street girl they picked up, <laughs> and they're taken home. And they were so loving and accepting and so kind to me. Well, her name was Faith. So Faith brought me home. And when I got to Pearl, Mississippi, my stepdad picked me up and brought me home. And I was three months pregnant at that time. I was, I was uh, about 10 weeks pregnant, to, to 10 or 12. I don't remember, 10, 12. Anyway, um, and uh, started working back at Broad Street. I went up to Broad Street, and I was like, hey, Mike, I need a job. I'm pregnant, and I just got back from this wild journey. You're never <laughs> going to believe it. And he was like, okay, Cody, they call me Cody, that's my last name. And um, he's like, welcome back. And so I worked at Broad Street from that part of my pregnancy all the way to nine and a half months right before I delivered. Well, there was a doctor uh, who kept coming in there, Dr. Ball, and he saw me pregnant as could be. And he's like, you still don't have a doctor? And I said, no, sir, but I feel fantastic. I feel so healthy and well, and I'm just going to go to the hospital when I'm ready. And he said, no, you need a doctor because you never know something could be wrong in there. And so I got Medicaid and went to see him. And then I got a phone call at Broad Street and they said, you have severely abnormal cells on your cervix and we're going to need you to come back in so we can talk about it. And I had no idea what that meant, but that was cancer. I had cancer, Um, but they never used the word cancer because they didn't want to scare me half to death because I was pregnant, you know, and um, I, I, I was okay with it, though. There was something still inside of me that was like, you're not going to die. This is not going to end you. You went through all of that stuff. You survived all of these things throughout your life, and this is not it. You're going to have this baby. And I put all of my heart and soul into becoming a mother, even though she would be fatherless and it was just me. I didn't care. I just wanted this baby more than anything in the world. And I was not scared of those severely abnormal cells. I just, I just knew that wasn't going to be the end of my lifeline. And so right after she was born, I had a hysterectomy. Six, six weeks later, um, I had a C-section and then a hysterectomy. So same scar, opened right back up. And um, real painful, but nothing, nothing could hurt me. I held that baby in my arms, my little Serena Simone. She was the most beautiful baby. She's so sweet. She hardly ever cried. Um, she was just the, the, the light of my life, and she still is. Mm-hmm. <sighs> so um, she literally saved my life in so many ways, so many ways physically spiritually she's just she's everything and so i made it a point to pour everything i had into loving that baby and i tried to find her a father and so i got married when she was two to a guy named daniel (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) But the only thing we had in common was tattoos and Guitar Hero <laughs> and going to bars and drinking. And so that relationship went south real fast. So we were probably only married a year and a half. And then there was there was the next guy, and he was in her life for six years. And he was her father figure, um, but still the drinking, that damn alcohol, you know. Um, but I didn't know that that was – keeping me ill. You know, I just thought that I struggled with depression and anxiety. And that's just the way it was. I thought that I'm an artist and artists are just mentally ill. And that's just the way it is. You know, Van Gogh cut his ear off and, you know, I just thought this is just who I am. And I just struggled mentally. I struggled to find self-love i struggled to find peace in my heart um i just didn't know how to take care of myself except for taking care of other people and that made me feel good at the end of the day i knew that i had made somebody's day by doing their wedding or their their makeup for some special occasion you know and so i worked at mac until simone was eight And then I started my makeup business, Uh, and then I was doing weddings. I got so busy. I was winning awards, and it was just like the floodgates opened up on me. Like, now everybody wants you to do their makeup, you know? And so I was overjoyed and overwhelmed. And so I poured, and I poured, and I poured, and I responded to all the messages. And I, 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 I was like, yes, 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 yes. For the next seven years, Mm. you know, and I slowly declined because I wasn't making time for myself. I wasn't physically taking time to take care of myself. And then there was COVID. And so during the weekdays when I wasn't busy, I was laying on the couch and I was on my phone and I was just not moving enough and I was eating and so it was either go 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 or just lay around and so I started gaining a lot of weight and I got up to 220 pounds and my legs were hurting my back my ankles my knees my neck I had a real I still have this little sore spot here from where I hold my arm up like that and I was just in pain all the time and uh my love life was in shambles And I was doing weddings for a living, so I'm happy for everybody else, And but I came home and wasn't happy for myself. And so I would drink wine and, you know, and I would go live on Facebook and paint my face and and say hey to my friends on Facebook. Those were my friends, you know. So even though I was alone— I had my Facebook and my Facebook friends have been there for me through so much and they're real women out there. There's a few men too, but but my my I, I really bond with my ladies because of those ten thousand three hundred and eighty something people, I've probably done half of their makeups. And had them in my face. And we we created that connection and that bond. And so I left a lasting impression in their life. And so they continued to support me. And so as I was um, gaining weight and in pain, but still just pushing, pushing through, um, carrying my makeup and standing on my legs for eight hours in the same spot, and not, you know, when you're doing makeup, you can't stop. You can't you can't disengage and go to the bathroom sometimes because you're on a timeline. That photographer's going to show up, and it's time to shine. Mm-hmm. You have to have those eight to ten people make, made up perfectly. And I can execute those eight to ten people now and feel fantastic and do squats and go lift weights <laughs> afterwards now. But back then, it killed me. It took everything in me just to show up. And I struggled mentally. I woke up having to really dig deep to find the joy and the light to shine. Because it was just a bear flicker, you know. And it's because I stopped taking care of me. I didn't know how to love me. The only way I knew how to love me was by loving others. And then they, um, their happiness Brought a smile to my face, you know, and I knew at the end of the day I did a good job. But that's not that's not right. We have to take care of ourselves and develop ourselves so that we can shine our truest bright light and give people the best of us, you know, not the bare flicker. And so now that I've transformed my life and I'm healthy and whole and I'm well, I can use all of these experiences to inspire and influence other people of no matter what you're going through, there is always that seed of hope. Always, no matter what, never give up, never. Um, so I quit drinking um, June 6th of 2022 because the dark thoughts were just too much and that mental torture i was putting myself through i couldn't do it anymore that self talk that you're just a disgusting washed up old hag loser you just look like a disgraceful pathetic like these are the things i told myself and i looked in the mirror and i just i just didn't feel pretty anymore so i just put on more and more makeup And I just kept putting glitter and cheetah spots and (laughs) yellow and orange. And I just kept putting more and more makeup on and lashes out to here, you know. And it just, it still didn't make me feel pretty. I pretended that it did. And my Facebook friends and family, you know, were, were loving me and telling me how pretty I was, you know. But I still just didn't feel it. I just felt like a painted clown, you know. And so I quit drinking June 6th, 2022, to just get rid of all that. I'm just sick of it. You know, it was kind of like when I was outside of that uh, Walmart. It's like, anything's better than this. I've got to stop feeling this way. I hate this. And um, so I said, I'd rather be bored on my couch and have nothing to do than sit here and tell myself what a terrible person I am. And so I was bored for a whole good week or two, just not knowing what to do with myself. But I got on YouTube and I found out how terrible alcohol is for you. And I did a lot of research and I drank kombucha and hot tea and I had a tumbler with sparkling water and I kept drinking other things until, you know, I could calm down. It took about eight or nine days to really get rid of the the, the, the headaches and, you know, coming off of being a regular drinker, you know. And then I started to feel my mind and my heart and my soul come back to life. So for so long, I felt like I was swimming in the ocean with just like 50 pounds of sand on my back. And I'm just swimming and, and I see this island in front of me, but I could just never get there. I just felt like I was struggling, but when I quit drinking, I felt that sandbag lift off of me, and I could swim, and I was getting closer and closer to that island, and I started to love myself. I started to tell myself, you are talented and beautiful and worthy and capable, and these people that love you and support you see that in you. And I started to see it too. And um, so over the next six months of not drinking, I lost 10 uh, sorry, 20 pounds of inflammation. So I went down from 220 to 200. And then I found out about this new miraculous natural fat loss product. And it was brand new to the market. And my client, Kimberly, told me about it. And she's like, go sign up right now. You need to be an elite founder. This is going to change your life. Be on my team. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, people approach me about products all the time. I don't care. But then whenever I read that it was an anti-inflammatory, I said, okay. Because I wasn't really trying to lose weight. There was never, I never thought that I was, um, ugly or anything you know I loved my full-figured body I I, you know I did photo shoots um hashtag more to love so I wasn't even looking to lose weight I just wanted to feel better and the pain in my legs and my knees were um keeping me from being great and so I said okay it's an anti-inflammatory and I might get down to a size eight or a ten like when I was younger that sounds great let's do it so um I prayed about it for a whole week because it cost me $3,600 to um, be an elite founder. That's the top of the top in the company. Okay. You're like buying a share. And I had $4,000 to my name. And that's not a lot of money in the adult world. We can spend that in no time. Right. And so I took a huge leap of faith and decided to just go all in. And, um, and this was for a product that I hadn't even tried yet. Mm. Okay. Yeah. I was really trusting the process, but I did the research and I found out that if it balances those metabolism hormones, that it will work. So I, I, I did it, took it and immediately I was losing a size a week. And then before I knew it, I was a size eight in two months. And I couldn't believe it. My body was tiny, and I was, my clothes in my dirty clothes basket were too big by the time I washed them to put on. I mean, I literally just was the incredibly shrinking woman. And I felt incredible. Like, week three, week four, I jumped up off the couch. was like, my legs don't hurt. I'm, like, ready to rock and roll. And, I mean, I started hula hooping again, and I was riding my bike. I was having the best time, you know, feeling good again, and um, anyways, I I ended up just rocking that, and uh, ended up doing the CEO's makeup, and going to South Carolina in Charleston, where I used to live, ironically, and got to speak on stage, and um, now I've won a trip to Thailand (laughs) that I'm supposed to go on, but I don't have my passport yet, I'm sorry, Kimberly, I don't have my passport yet, (laughs) but, um, I don't know if I'll be able to go or not, but I guess my point of this is that, um, I physically transformed, I've spiritually transformed mentally, all of these transformations, you know, I've become a butterfly. That's why I'm wearing my butterfly and I've broken free from that light bulb. And so now with my story, um, when i when i get my book finished i feel like i'm going to publish it when i'm 44 so i'm going to be working on it this year and i'll be 44 next year and yeah and um i want the cover to be a light bulb broken open with flowers and light just busting out And I'm going to paint that on my face and we're going to make it happen. I'm going to have my story and it's going to be full of art and inspiration. And I just want my life to inspire others, you know, because I mean, I just have been flooded with messages of people telling me that I've inspired them. And so I find that very motivating to keep going and to do what I do. Because people are watching. Yeah. You never know who's watching. I even had a message last night okay. of a woman who was drinking and, and really struggling. And, um, and I, I told her, I was like, okay, well, tonight's the last night you're drinking. Mark it on your calendar. Tomorrow is your first day sober. And I said, message me tomorrow. You've got homework. So hopefully, you mm. know, I planted a seed with her. And it just is such a grateful honor to live in a life that I feel like I can help people just by helping myself, you know?
0: Just by being who we are, you know, and so many people, I mean, your story is amazing, and so many people would have a hard time recovering from some of the things that you've gone through, so you know that there somehow was a power greater than you at work all along the way, but nothing is wasted, you know? It's what I've learned, that I don't, I can't regret my past. There's nothing I would ever change about my past. I wouldn't be where I am today, and nor would you be. I think you'd agree with me on that Mm -hmm. if it weren't for the things that you've gone through Mm -hmm. and the people that you are now able to reach as a result. I mean, there are people that you could reach that I'd never be able to reach with your experience and what you've been through, you know, and they're all out there.
1: Well, we all have our own voice. Yes. Your voice reaches people I can't reach, you know? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. It's just. So much hope. So what would you say to someone who might be in a situation like you're in, might be in that place of jumping off, of feeling like, you know, they're just not going to make it? (sighs) To your younger self, from your adult self, what would you tell your younger self I would say just
1: hang in there, baby girl. There is so much love and joy and peace and restoration. You just have to take the first step. That's all. It is just really a matter of putting your foot on the ground outside of your bed and then taking that first step. You know, because sometimes getting out of bed can be the hardest thing in the world. But when we take that first step of courage, be brave. That's what I would say. Be brave. Thank you. Take that first step.
0: I love you, my friend, and I'm so glad you were here today. Thank you for your story, for your life, for who you've become and are becoming and the lives that you're changing and touching all over the place. And Thank I'm going to ask Danny if he would put up your um, information and if you want to just share with people what what we're seeing up here.
1: Yay! I am Christine Cody on Facebook. That's my main page. I have a business page just for my makeup, but Christine Cody is the the page you want to go to. And then on Instagram, I'm ms.mua.christinecody. And that's it. I, okay. I don't like to have too many platforms. So it's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot.
0: Keep it simple.
1: Um Christine Cody's Playhouse on TikTok.
0: Awesome. Look <laughs> at those look at that work though. That's is, it is amazing. You are talented.
1: Multifaceted. Yes. <laughs> many <Wonderful>. hats.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Christine. And Danny, if you put up an honor. Go ahead. What? It's been an honor. Oh, awesome. Yes. (laughs) And uh, for me, as you know, um, we are available if there's anyone out there that's struggling and you're just looking to talk to somebody. um, all we have to offer is our experience, our strength, and our hope. But you have access to reach out, you can reach out to me at Rick Gregory at theawakencollective.org. You can go to our website at theawakencollective.org. YouTube, all that information is there, youtube.com at rick.gregory, my Facebook page, The Awakened Collective. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to help in any way we can. You've heard some really deep things here today from my friend Christine, and if there's anyone out there that's struggling, I have friends who have contacts all over the country for people that can help you in recovery, can help you with trauma therapy, so please reach out. Thanks for joining us today. Love you. And as always, uh, you are loved and you are the extension of your divine creator's love on this planet. We'll see you next week.